Let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles back to Luke chapter 11. Um, We've made our way down to uh, verse 24 this morning. Uh, We've come to another text that's largely parabolic, meaning it most... Uh, mostly resembles a parable. Um, and like many of Jesus' parables, it, it comes with a very uh, stern and serious warning. Um, it's a warning that Matthew and Luke both record. Uh, Luke seems to be placing it where he does in his gospel um, in order to make that warning uh, very personally and individually applicable. Um, and it would appear that Matthew places, uh, places it where he does um, w- with his Jewish audience in mind and is intending in that same uh, warning to, to, uh, or to apply that same warning sort of collectively and corporately uh, to them. Uh, we're going to try to interact with both of those uh, this morning. And let me, a couple other things. Um, there's some interesting insights into sort of the realm of spirits, if you will, the unseen world in this. Uh, There's a little bit of eschatology that's uh, necessitated by it. So it'd be pretty fun and fascinating in ways and to be a good Baptist, pretty foreboding in others, right? So um, uh, anywho, fun or foreboding, it's the Word of God and we need it. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right. Let's read it together, and then we'll ask for his help. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. This is the authoritative word of God. Find my clicker. All right. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes... It finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... uh, the revelation of yourself that it contains. Please help us, Lord, this morning to understand it. Uh, Please give us insight and wisdom. Pour out your Spirit upon us this morning. Uh, Thank you that he is present with us. Please give us understanding. Please uh, pierce our hearts that we might respond um, in a way that uh, befits the text that befits the, the revelation and the truth that's contained within it. Lord, we need your grace for that, as always. Please pour it out upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, remember from last week that Luke had ended that previous section by telling us of that ultimatum that Jesus had given there in verse 23. Right? He concluded that section by saying, whoever's not with me is against me. Right? Whoever does not gather with me scatters. My premise to you was that what that's saying is when it comes to Jesus Christ, when it comes to his kingdom, 
neutrality is not permitted. Right? Every sentient being that ever has or will exist is going to be on one side or the other. There's no middle ground. And I think in, in a big sense, uh, today's text is going to illustrate that and enforce it in a big way, enforce the reality of that in a big way. All right, look again at verse 24. And remember that last week that section had begun with Jesus casting a demon out of a man, delivering the man from the control of that demon. Remember that if you were here? All right, so verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. So see the picture that's being painted here. This, I mentioned before, it's parabolic, but only partially. Okay? There's some literalness here, if that's a word to this. See the picture. Right? This unclean spirit we would tend to associate, correlate with the demon of the, of the previous passage. It's either been driven out or has left on its own. We're not explicitly told, though given the context, we would assume that its leaving was reluctant. It wasn't an act of its own will. Either way now, we're told that this unclean spirit, this evil spirit, is now disembodied. And the picture is that it's roaming around trying to find a new home, right? Trying to find a new place of rest, as Jesus said. Now, from what I can gather from commentators, this would have been demonology 101 for a first century Jew. In other words, that they, it was just an assumed truth that disembodied spirits, they were constantly out looking for a host, right? And, and that they kind of had this inner restlessness within them until they found a host in which to reside. And, and some think that that reference to waterless places here, um, some translations may say arid places, or uh, the idea is like deserted, re remote places, places where the blessing of God has not been upon the land to cause uh, life to be sustained, those ideas. So uh, some commentators say that that reference to waterless places there is indicative of that fact that, that, that Jews, the Jews at this time at least considered sort of desolate, destroyed, uninhabited cities, former cities or, or just uninhabited areas of land to be the dwelling place of disembodied spirits. Right? In other words, if they, if they didn't have a host, if they didn't have a place to rest, they would abide out in these desolate, uninhabited places. You can see something of that idea in Revelation 18, uh, verse 2, in the description of the judgment on Babylon. Notice what just seems to be assumed there. The angel calls out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Remember, at one time, this great city of the world, only two sides, only two cities in the book of Revelation, right? The, the, the church in the world, Jerusalem and Babylon, right? Babylon now has been destroyed, and now she's empty and she's vacant. And see the language. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt, sort of like a place of spiritual captivity is what that word means in the Greek there. A haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Wow. You can see that kind of thinking, right, of this desolate, destroyed city. 
Also, we saw a a similar idea being illustrated back in chapter 8, if you'll remember, when we looked at Jesus uh, commanding that legion of demons to come out of those men there that we call the demoniacs. Remember, uh, verse 31 we read that the demons then begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss, right? Into the wasteland, if you will. Or remember we saw the CSB, they begged them not to banish him, banish them out into the abyss. And I don't know if you remember, but that Greek word there behind abyss, uh, the root of it, the root word in it, it means deep water. Remember that? Connecting it back, sort of this idea of waterless places. I'm trying to show you the thinking. Um, remember, they asked not to be, or they asked to be allowed to go into those pigs, <laughs> thinking that would be, you know, something of a salvation. Jesus grants that petition, and then the pigs, once they're in, inhabited by them, the pigs rush headlong down into a watery abyss, right? Into the Sea of Galilee, into the lake, and they drown, right? Perishing in a way that that foretold their coming final destruction that we see later. Okay, hopefully you remember all that. I'm just throwing all that out there so we get into the mindset, so we can better understand the metaphor here. Um, uh, either way, okay, um, the the... the What's clearly stated here is that the, the, this demon or this unclean spirit in our text, he's now homeless, right? He's, he's gone, he's lost his host, he's homeless, and he's out seeking somewhere else to rest, somewhere else to live. But then look back at verse 24, Jesus says he can't find one. There's this restlessness. He can't find another host to inhabit. It says this, it passes through water, Jesus says this, at the end, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And look, and finding none, it says, here's an idea. I'll just return to my house from which I came. Now, I know this is basic, but what is he referring to there when he says, my house? The man, right? The person, right? The, 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 the man that he once possessed, right? That he, that he tormented, that he subdued, the, the man whose life that he had once wrecked. The, the man whose house, if you will, he had left disheveled and, and in disrepair. Right? You see, following the metaphor. That's what the house represents here. And I, and, I, and I illustrate that because I think verse 25 then ought to come as a surprise to us. Right? Think about it. When it comes back to that house that it had left disheveled and in disrepair, it finds the house... Swept and put in order. Amen. Think about that. Yeah. He, he wreaked havoc in it before. right? He was a bad tenant. <laughs> he was a destructive tenant. And any of you landlords can probably sympathize with this. And now he comes and, and it, the house, he comes back and the, the house is pristine. Right? It's beautiful. To, to put it in common parlance, the, the, somebody hauled all the trash off. They, 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 they scrubbed all the surfaces and, and replaced the carpet. And patched all the holes in the drywall from all that rowdiness. Put a fresh coat of paint on the walls, right? Yeah. Put some of them smoky thingies that the ladies like from essential oils to make it smell good, right? Like that's the idea here that's being connotated, right? And, and, it, and it looked as though the demon had never even lived there. Right. 
See the point? It looked as, put it this way, now the place is more accommodating than it was uh, 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 when he left, right? right? Now, what's the metaphor here? Well, we know the demon or the, the man had been delivered from demonic oppression, okay? And, and in, if, if this is meant to correlate to the man in the previous section, we know that he could now see, he could now speak, he can now begin to put his life back together, etc. But I think it would appear that it appears from the nature of the metaphor itself that, that there's an implication, and I think we'll see that later, bear with me, that the man had made great progress, if you will, in implementing like moral and religious reforms in his life. Okay? So it's, it's more than just now he can see, now he can speak. I think the connotation is deeper than that. There's a cleaning up, right? There's a, the man, he's cleaned up his life. He's, he's, he's turned himself into a better man, in a sense. Okay? Now, does that sound good? Yeah, okay, not a trap. Right? There's one small problem. Actually, it's a huge problem, okay? And, and Matthew spells it out for us. Notice what Matthew includes that Luke does not. He says, when it comes, he finds the house swept and put in order. But what? But empty. See? But empty. That's the problem. See, that, that's the point of the whole thing. It, the problem isn't that the house is clean, is it? The problem isn't that the house is remodeled. In other words, the problem isn't that the man is living a better life, Right? The problem's that the house is vacant, that it's empty, that, that no new tenant has moved in. It's all, it's, all, it's all clean, it's all furnished, it's open for occupant, occupancy, occupation. Right? It's suit, well suited for that, but no one's living there. Again, what's the metaphor? I mean, it's obvious. The man's cleaned up his life. But, but, but he's done nothing beyond that. Right? In other words, he's not turned to Christ in repentance and faith. He's made moral reforms, but he's not been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Right? And because he's not turned to Christ in repentance and faith, because he's not been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, even though he's made all those moral reforms, he's created a vacuum in his soul. Right? And what happens with a vacuum to objects around it? It sucks them in. And a lot of times, it's objects that we don't want to be sucked in. Right? That's what happens here. Look at verse 26. So, sees that it's empty. Sees that it's, it's really polished up, ready for habitation. Then it goes, and it brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. Or as the CSB says again, they settle down there. Right. See that? For whatever reason, the demon hadn't been able to pay the rent by himself before. Right? <laughs> no. okay. It's just a metaphor. But he hadn't been able to maintain possession of that home before. Something had driven him out. Something had overpowered him and caused him to leave. He'd been evicted. Right? But now he brings seven of his friends with him. He sees this is a nice place to live now. Woo, they've done some good work. But I can't, I can't maintain it on my own. So he goes and gets his buddies. And remember, 
The Bible often uses that number seven to connote the idea of completion or, or totality or something, right? So the idea here is now with a, with a stronger force, see, he's able to find a permanent home for himself and for his friends. Now, let's, what's the metaphor? Let's spell it out again. I think it's important that we do, simple as it is, okay? Because it's real important. The man's made moral reforms, He's cleaned up his life. Is that bad? To, 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 to put it in common day, maybe he stopped cussing. Okay? I remember Scott saying one time when the Lord first saved him, he's like, I don't cuss and I don't drink, and man, I'm perfect or something. Right? Like, okay, I don't want to get too into that. But that's kind of how we all are when we first come to Christ, right? It seems like when then the, the Lord reveals our inner sins and we. You know, just get lower and lower and lower. <laughs> but yeah, but there's been these moral reforms, right? These external modifications the man's made in his life. Maybe quit doing drugs, speaking colloquially. Quit getting drunk. Quit watching stuff he shouldn't watch, etc. Right? Maybe start volunteering in town. Whatever. He's made more reforms, but he's not sought out a new tenant for his heart. See that? And, and, and because of that, a, a, a force that was far superior, superlatively superior to the force that had him captive before has now come in and the control that it has over him is complete. Do you see that? Is that a serious warning? Yeah. Let's, let's state it plainly. Okay? And, and connect it back to verse 23. The man, he's cleaned up his life but he's attempted to remain spiritually neutral. What did Jesus say about that in verse 23? Scott, shake his head. He says, whoever's not with me is against me. See, to not choose is to make a choice, isn't it? To try to avoid any allegiance and just be a good person. See, that is to choose, and, and it's choosing the wrong side, right? The rest of the verse, it's choosing the losing side. Jesus said, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me, come over to my side, willfully, volitionally, is going to be scattered. It's going to be plundered with the enemy of the other side. We looked at that last week. Look at the end of verse 26 and see how... He issues the warning today. It's very similar. He says, the last state of that person. Back to our parable today. The person who's been delivered from demonic oppression, but's tried to remain neutral. The person who's been delivered from demonic oppression, but and has made more reforms in his life and just is content with trying to just be a good moral person, or as they say today, just being a good human. Right. Okay? The last state of that man is worse than the first. It's worse than the first. Mike McKinley says this. Sorry, I didn't put that up there. He says, the point is that there is no such thing as a spiritual vacuum. In other words, it won't stay that way. It will suck something in. If you do nothing, he says, you will be under the influence of the devil. Why? It's our, that's our fallen nature. See, we're, we don't, we're not born into this world neutral, right? And it can just go either way. We're born with a bent towards sin. Right. 
Right? We are, as Paul said in Ephesians, by nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind from the very beginning. And he says, if you do nothing, you won't be neutral, you'll be under the influence of the devil. He says this, I think it's good, there are no spiritual orphans. He says, either God is your father or Satan is your master. Have we seen Jesus say that over and over and over throughout this study? We have. He says, either God is your father or Satan is your master. And so there can be no neutrality. There can be no split loyalties in this conflict between Jesus and the devil. Think last week. And he asked piercingly, have you thrown your lot in with Christ? He says, if not, do not imagine that you are somehow Switzerland. Right? The nation who's neutral in this cosmic war. We talked about that last week, so I won't go into it again. Now, one more commentary. We'll move forward. Uh, this is from Philip Rock, and, and, and he kind of just dispenses with metaphors altogether, states it very plainly, uh, states very plainly what he considers to be the personal individual application of this truth that I was talking about before, and it's simply this. Sorry. What we need, he says, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus has promised that the Father will give to anyone who asks. See, he references verse 13 that we looked at a few weeks ago. Right? Ask, seek, knock. It's your Father's good pleasure. Right? He says, we need to pray for the stronger one from last week, the one who, the one who goes and, and, and wages war against the strong man and plunders his house and, and is able to take those who are captive to the strong man. We need the stronger one to give us the supernatural transforming grace of the Holy Spirit. Guys, the transformation has to be inward. It can't be merely external. It cannot. That fails. Okay, we'll talk about that more later. He says, we need that transforming grace of the Holy Spirit. Who, and let me qualify, I probably should qualify it now. Will inward transformation produce outward transformation? Yes, but it don't work the other way. Okay, he says, the Holy Spirit who alone can replace our lust with purity, our worry with trust. Notice these sins of the heart. Our greed with contentment, our anger with patience, our profanity with peace, our addictions with selfless zeal for the glory of God. Brethren, moralism, as it's so-called, that will not save in the end. Right? In the end, although it, although it, it whitewashes the tomb... Right? It cleans the outside of the cup where it looks really good. Right? But in the end, it actually leads to deeper, darker, more secret, more hidden, but more devastating sins. Right. See, Remember this. What, remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes, in Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. In other words, you, you, you're not what you appear to be. Right. You... Travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. What's that? Someone who follows after them. What were they known for? For being different. Right? The holy ones. Right? For, for externally, they, they had this moralism that was rigid. Guys, it's, it's, I don't want, I, I'll qualify it later. Okay? They had this moralism that was rigid. And when they would go and make a proselyte, what would they expect the proselyte to do? Tithe on mint, dill, and cumin just like them. Okay? But neglect the weightier matters of the law. 
right? And he says, so, so here's that idea of moralism. And Jesus warned, when they become your disciple, when they become a proselyte, look, same thing as our text, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. These whitewashed, these beautiful sepulchers, to use the old King James, right? Guys, moral reformation is good, hear me, okay? It's not our greatest need. It's not our most fundamental need. And, and, And it doesn't take the Spirit of God to make moral reformation. What's our greatest need? Regeneration, right? Inward renewal is our greatest need. Okay, that has to be the source, right? Regeneration then, when, 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 when the inside is cleansed, when the inside is made new, that's, gonna re- that's going to produce repentance, right? That's going to produce repentance from moralism. It's going to produce ongoing progressive repentance in the Christian life. Right? That's going to cause us to put our hope, our confidence, our trust fully in Christ. And, and that regeneration and, and, and putting our faith and trust in Christ, that's going to bring the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Amen. Now, and think, if, if, if the Holy Spirit occupies your house, can anybody kick Him out? No. Is He omnipotent God? Yeah. See, God Almighty? <laughs> Amen. See, if the Spirit of God is your tenant, your house is secure. That's the point of the parable. And if He isn't, it's vulnerable. It's open to attack. It's weak and frail. There's great danger upon your soul. I think that's the application here for our lives on a personal level. Now, go ahead and turn over to Matthew 12, if you will. And I think this is very similar to what we saw last week where... where here, too, we have one essential truth um, that's, being, that's serving as a basis for two distinct applications of that truth. We saw a similar thing last week with the baptism, or not baptism, very much not that. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, okay? <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, Luke, as I stated before, seems to have meant an individual or personal sort of application with today's text, with putting it where he does. But Matthew seems almost unquestionably to have meant the same, uh, to have meant to make make a corporate and collective application of that same truth in his text. Um, We're going to read verse 45 in a minute, but I want you to scan over a few of the verses with me so we can see the broader context. I think it's important. Notice that verse 30 contains that, uh, that ultimatum, that same ultimatum that we read in verse 23 of our text. Verse 30, verses 31 and 32, excuse me, contain the warnings that we uh, ended with last week about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 38, I think, uh, is where Matthew kind of begins the immediate context for uh for the way he implements the section that we read today in Luke. I think it's going to be worth reading over that. So let's jump in in verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, so this is kind of setting the context or the subject, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Okay, we'll talk about that more in a couple weeks. 
He went on to say this in verse 41, The men of Nineveh, pagan Gentile men, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Who's he talking about? Himself, right? The queen of the south. Again, pagan, Gentile, Ethiopian queen will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Referring to Jesus, right? So notice then that it's on the heels of these indictments these corporate collective indictments that Matthew places the parable that we've been looking at today. Now, that's not enough to prove that, but just bear with me. You'll see he states it plainly at the end of verse 45. But let's read over it again. Verse 43, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Now watch what he includes um, on the last verse that Luke did not. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. They enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. And he says, so also. So there's an additional application here. So also will it be to this evil generation. So see, it it appears to me that Jesus is taking that warning that in its most basic sense is referring to the dangers of, of individual indecision, individual lack of commitment, right? That that freedom that leads to indecision, that leads to Ichabod, as I had on the title screen that leads to possession. He's taking that and he's applying that same principle collectively to Israel. Let me say something up front here. I know there's a lot of debate about what's meant by this phrase, (laughs) this generation, right? Whether it's referring to people of a certain age group like we think of it today, uh, people of a certain ethnicity, um, uh, uh, people with certain shared distinctives and behaviors or even people that inhabit a certain epoch of time like you would say the generation of the exodus or the generation of the old testament etc it could be a week a thousand years whatever all that's within the semantic range of that word generation i'm not going to weigh in on that this morning okay um i think each situation the context is going to have to determine it but let me say, we'll deal with that later. We'll be forced to, okay, a couple times, many times over in Luke's gospel, Lord willing. But I don't think it's necessary for us to deal with that now, and here's why. Because either way, whether it's talking to just those people that would have constituted Generation Z or whatever of Israel at that time, or the generation that rejected Jesus, or the generation of the, the last temple period, or however you dice it out, the warning and the indictment is going to be exactly the same. right? It's still going to be the same collective redemptive historical indictment. Consider these commentaries. You'll see, I think you'll see what I'm saying. In using this illustration, Jesus clearly indicated that though the Jews had been cleansed from their idolatry by the severity of the Babylonian exile, so see where he's placing it, he's saying, you know, 
They were, they were brought into that exile, into that ca- captivity because of their idolatry. And, and God had used, metaphoric, or not metaphorically, He had used that in a sense to rid them of that external idolatry worship. And by this time, at the end of the intertestimonial period, testimonial, mental period, okay, now they're no longer collectively, corporately worshiping idol gods, are they? He's saying they've been purged of that. Though their house has been cleaned of that, he says, the unbelief and hardness of heart, their unbelief now and hardness of heart was still had them in danger of producing an even worse moral condition than when they were idolaters. Watch this. The moral reformation that had taken place after the captivity should have prepared Israel for the ministries of John and Jesus. Right? He says, unfortunately, in most cases, it fell short in that Israel's spiritual house was then empty. Now watch this other one. It goes a little further. This is from a guy, Peter Bolt. I introduced him last week. Israel's sin, he, goes, he, he moves the timeline up to the first century. He says, Israel's sin had brought the darkness in. Guys, think about it. When Jesus enters in, comes into humanity... They're rife with demonic infestation. See? What does Jesus go about doing? We've seen over and over again. Dispelling them. Casting them out. Liberating. What did he announce in the synagogue in Nazareth? I've come to proclaim that good news of freedom for the captives. Right? The releasing of, of those who are bound. We looked at that maybe last week, if not two weeks ago. He says, um, uh, Israel's sin had brought the darkness in where it should not have been, but Jesus had been pushing the spirits out of Israel. Okay? This conquest. This generation, he says, had seen, quote, cleansing of the land through this ministry. And it was as if they now had a house nicely swept. But he warns, if they did not respond to him, to Jesus, then their last state would be worse than their first. And he's saying... This is the warning. This is the collective corporate warning that he's given. That if they rejected the Messiah, then their uncleanness and their, quote, spirit possession would be worse than it had ever been. We say, well, how can he come up with something like that out of that small verse? Well, think about it. Think about other things that Jesus said. Like Luke chapter 19, he gave similar warnings. Verse 41 and following, when Jesus drew near the city and he saw it, He wept over it, saying, there's real humanity. (laughs) Just throw that in. Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. Think of the metaphor, okay? The house, the heart, the soul that's in turmoil. But now they are hidden from your eyes. We'll see why in a minute. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the hour of your visitation. Whose visitation? Who came to visit? God in flesh. Right? He says, you rejected that. Thus, he says, this judgment of destruction is decreed upon you. And guys, that happened in the first century. 
that right there happened. Okay, look at this one, Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often, look at this, this one really parallels with our texts, both of them. How often would I have gathered your children together on my side? Right? Think verse 23. He who's not gathered with me is going to be scattered, plundered. Okay? How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But look, you're not willing. What's the consequence of not choosing sides? Whether it's non-commit, just not being non-committal or outright rejection. Behold your house. Notice that metaphor. Your house is left to you. Ichabod. Desolate. See, even freedom from their captors. Think, I don't know where my title screen is to put it up there. Hopefully you can remember that. Freedom, indecision, Ichabod, possession. Okay? That, that freedom from, from their Babylonian captors. Even the freedom from the demonic forces that Jesus had been repelling. Right? That coupled with non-committedness to Christ, indecision to Christ, has resulted in them being Ichabod. Their house being left to them desolate. And what's that going to mean? The last state's going to be worse than the first. See? And he, he gives this one condition. I'm really almost done. I think. Okay, don't be mad at me if I'm not. I've only got like a few pages left of notes. which It's not as much as it sounds. Think about this condition. It's so important. He says, I tell you, you'll not see me again. Here's the condition. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, until you acknowledge that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the Christ, that I'm the one that God has sent to bring peace, to reconcile to himself. Now think about this. Peter, I think this gives us a lot of hope. Okay? Because we see the judgment, the corporate, even in the midst of the corporate collective judgment on the nation that was carried out in the first century. Even in the midst of that, Peter preached this at Pentecost. He says, or Luke tells us, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, the Jews at Pentecost, saying what? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. What's he calling them to do? Flee. <laughs> right? He's, he's saying, the destruction is coming. Flee. Do you remember how he told them two verses before to accomplish that salvation? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Guys, now watch this. Watch how it all ties together. And now, choose sides. Okay, He's telling them, choose, flee from that side that's in rebellion to Christ, that's rejecting their Messiah. Their destruction's coming. Flee to the side of Christ. Gather with Christ and then watch what happens. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see that? No more Ichabod. See, even for those who are ethnically a part of that rebellious generation, however we define it, those who, are, those who would otherwise be swept up in its destruction, houses become worse than they were before. See, if they flee, okay, if they 
align themselves with Christ, if they turn and they put their faith and trust in Jesus, they publicly profess Him as Savior and Lord, see, their house will be inhabited personally by the Spirit of God. Is there any danger then of them undergoing demonic possession at that point? Is there any danger of them, of their house becoming worse in the end than it was at the beginning? See that? But only because the Spirit of Christ has become their tenant. You see that? Guys, is that true for the Gentile too? Amen. There is no difference here. right? We must all flee. Think of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We must all flee. We must flee morality. Think about Pilgrim's Progress. I don't have time to get into it all. I'm going to violate my word to you. But what's true for the Jew is true for the Gentile. right? We must leave those wicked and crooked, perverse generations. That, that, that we're in, and we must flee to Christ, align ourselves, amass ourselves with Him, and then we'll be filled with the Spirit of God. Here's the reality for all. Romans 8, last place. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's no amount of moral reformation, good as it is, no amount of external religious observance, Guys, no amount of political activism, fill in the blank, okay, suffices, okay? Those who are in the flesh, the, the natural man, the unregenerate man, remember this is showing us our great need of regeneration and spirit indwelling. No amount can please God. But look, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. So you've gone into a different category of being. You see, I shouldn't say that. That could be misaligned. Okay, but you've been moved into a different category if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. See that? Because you're not in the flesh if that's the case. Right? That means your heart's been circumcised. It means you've got a new tenant. And look what he says. Anyone, Jew, Gentile, man, Woman, slave, master, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. As all those other markers, they don't matter before God. What matters is if you are in Christ. What matters is that when God looks upon you, He sees His Son. Amen. What matters is that the Spirit of God lives within you. That the Spirit of God is your master. He's the tenant of your heart and of your soul. That's what matters. Look, verse 10. It says, but... So before he'd said, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But, he says, notice, if Christ is in you, this is a great comfort to my soul, although the body is dead because of sin... Oh me, as Pastor David says. Can we relate to that? Yes. Living in the already in the not yet. Yes. Can we relate to failures? Yes. Right? Can we relate to giving in to sinful passions even now? Yes. As, as they wage war against our souls. But look at the promise. Even though we're going to have that constant reminder of failure here. Okay? Even though 
The body is dead because of sin. Look, the spirit, the house in which the spirit of God dwells is life because of righteousness. Who's righteousness? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus' righteousness. And then here it is. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, what does that mean for you? means He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Yes. See the promise in that? See the certainty in that? Yeah, guys, I said it before. If the Spirit of God tabernacles in your heart, can He be dispelled? No. Is there any force in all of the universe, outside of the universe, that can, that can force the Spirit of God out of your heart. No way. <laughs> I like that. No way. <laughs> I wish I had the manly voice to convey it that way. No way. Guys, what's, what's that promising us? <laughs> even though we struggle now with our sinful flesh, even though we're not fully redeemed at this point, our justification is complete, but, but we've not reached that state of glorified perfection in our flesh, what, even though we still undergo physical suffering and death. Oh me? What's the promise? The tenant of your soul is there forever. And, 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 and because He's there, when you breathe your last, when you thirst, and you perish, as a consequence of that sin, in a sense, naturally speaking, you're guaranteed to come to life. You see that? Is that glorious? Because that's how that chain right there is unbroken. And that's the only, or not unbroken, that's how that chain right there is broken. Naturally speaking, and you can look at the American experiment, you can look at all of Western society, you can look at a lot of different factors to vindicate what I'm saying here. Freedom in and of itself it's not going to produce this. Right? You give a man liberty with nothing else happening, it's going to go to this. That's right. When it comes to Christ. At best, if it doesn't go the other way. <laughs> and that right there, indecision, that's going to leave you Ichabod. Yeah. And then your last state's worse than the first. It's, it's inevitable. Why? Because our natures are fallen and corrupted. Right? What breaks it? The regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit. Right? The indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. Which produces in us repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's ask Him to work that in us. Lord, who are we that you would show us such kindness? Who are we that you would extend the offer of your presence to tabernacle within us? You're so gracious. You're so kind. You're so patient. Long-suffering. We praise you. Lord, we bow the knee before you this morning.
We repent. We ask for grace to repent of our moralism, of self-righteousness, of indecision, of any wavering in our flesh, in our commitment to Christ and His kingdom. We're sorry for that. Help us, please. Empower us. Put your spirit within us. Circumcise our hearts. Give us life. New life. Grant us, please, those precious gifts of repentance and faith. We praise you. We thank you for what you've provided. We ask that you would provide it still. In Jesus' name, amen.